Welcome back to another episode of the Golf.com podcast. I'm Sean Zock, joined as always by Dylan DeChair. My voice is gone because my brother got married this weekend, and I'm not going to apologize for that. You're just screaming all weekend? Pretty much. Voice will be back next week. We are Full going to... husky Zock in the Golf.com <laughs> studios today. We will dive into a number of golf topics, notably pace of play on the PGA Tour, and later we're going to have an interview with Dylan Fratelli. But first, Dylan DeChair, have we had a golfy week? Have we had a golfy week? Well, I didn't play any golf personally. I went to, um, I was in California for a few days. I was in the warm weather. I was thinking about golf. I was watching golf. Can you do any better than that? Yeah, I played Janesville Country Club oh. back in Wisconsin. Some people might know I wrote this story about a, this green jacket that Augusta really wants but can't have. And it's owned by a man in Baltimore. Now, his great-grandpa named George King, who was originally an Augusta member, he would, on the side, he would go home back to his home course in Wisconsin. That was Janesville Country Club. Wild coincidence, that's where my brother got married. So that's, Whoa. A, that's about all I got. For, this is completing the circle of the yeah, free story. All right, well, that's pretty good. And then there was no, this was as part of the wedding. That's one of the nice things. If you have your wedding at a country club, generally they'll let you play there. So I yeah, want to get I guess so. Pine Valley. You're dumping some money into the place. That's that's got to be actually a full pod topic for another time. Is like, what is the best way to do wedding golf? Because that's a thorny thing. You got a wide range of ability levels. I was the best sobriety. Golfer. I was the best golfer in the group. Me and my brother won in a two man scramble, but it turned out to be a 76. So Ooh. not bad, not great, not bad. Onward. What do you got for us? Patrick Reed won the Northern Trust. He's back. His first win since the Masters. And that should normally be a big deal, but not this week because pace of play on the PGA Tour took center stage. Bryson DeChambeau was at the forefront. A couple of videos surfaced of him on Twitter Mm -hmm. taking his sweet time to play golf. And the PGA Tour eventually releases this quasi press conference or press release saying that it's going to start using ShotLink to analyze very close to the pace of play, individualizing things, who is playing slow, who is taking their time, who's playing fast. It feels like a big deal, but this issue has plagued the game forever, particularly the tour. Will something actually come of it? First of all, before I answer your question, I do want to say it seems like we're getting closer and closer to Twitter just running the PGA Tour. That's which, great. Is that, is that a positive step? I'm not sure. There is still nothing that has happened that makes me think there will be substantive change. It's too tricky an issue, and I keep coming back to what is the issue here? What is the problem with slow play? Is it these one-off incidents where people on PGA Tour Live get stuck like watching Bryson for two minutes? Is it overall that the product is just taking too long start to finish? It's part of it. What is the exact problem? Because mostly what I saw was just a mob ganging up and everyone just throwing alley-oop passes and just slam dunking all over Bryson DeChambeau on Twitter. I think I think part of the the issue is that it's against the rules. Like there is a place in the rule book that says this is how fast you're supposed to play. And that is all governed because it's a skill set. Like you need to be able to apply the skills that you have, which are elite, which are the best in the world, and you have to do that within a certain amount of time or those skills aren't as impressive as we thought they were. Like Brooks Kepka plays faster than Bryson DeChambeau. And they might shoot the same score, but Brooks Kepka, in a way, according to the PGA Tour's rulebook, that should be more impressive. Well, look, and I agree with that, but I also think that there, 
I, I'm not sure that having a shot clock like every single shot, I, I'm not sure that that adds anything to the game. There is gray area all over this issue. There is gray area. And honestly, looking back through the rules, they're decent. They're not bad. They they have some common sense built into them. You know, if you're in position, then you can take a little bit longer. It's just if you get put on the clock, then look, you start getting timed. It's just that no one enforces these rules. Yes. So. The concrete step that I would like to see taken is literally just enforce the rules as they're currently written. Mm -hmm. This is maybe counterintuitive, but one tweak I would make is maybe to give a little bit more leeway to maybe extend these times out so that instead of 40 seconds, maybe it's a minute. Because then if you're actually going over that time... Yeah, you're doing something really wrong. You are doing something wrong. I know Slugger White has gone on the record before saying, look, he doesn't want to penalize guys for slow play. That's good, but... Look, make it a bad enough offense, and then the rule breakers will only have themselves to blame. What I think you're afraid of and the people on the PGA Tour that are slow players are afraid of is the full stop. When I was on campus at UW-Madison, one day the police officers went out and they patrolled the bike lanes so that people were not standing in the bike lanes, cars were not turning through the bike lanes, and it happened in an instant. On one Monday, they decided to do it, and they handed out hundreds of tickets. They were not handing out tickets the weekend prior, and it was all mayhem. Now, on the PGA Tour, if they start handing out penalties, you're going to have some kind of mayhem. That's what everyone's afraid of, is that first Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, when they hand out tickets, so to say. Did you get a bike ticket? I did not. I'm a walker at all times. <laughs> but what I'm saying is that that day, that D-Day, in which they start handing out penalties, it needs to be the same across the board. Mm -hmm. And that's why this gray area is tricky, because Bryson took more than two minutes to size up an eight-foot putt, which is a 50-50 putt on the PGA Tour, which is very important in that sense. You make birdie, you're gaining half a stroke on the field. That's too much time though. And I think the most important thing is that the PJ Tour is not necessarily responding to Twitter, but a subset of Twitter. It's responding to its players on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Ian Poulter saying that this is embarrassing. Justin Rose saying, hit the putt. Wait a minute. A lot of people sounding off. Technically, not Justin Rose, by the way. Common misconception. This was a dude named Justin Rose oh, who is yeah. a reporter and tweeted this thing out. And people like yourself, Marks, all over the internet Found thought, it. oh, Justin Rose is going okay. off. It did seem off-brand. Not yeah. very Rosie-like. Anyways. But the point Poulter, stands. Lee Westwood. Eddie Lucas Pepperell, Clover, Eddie Pepperell Eddie called him a twit. The what does that mean? Is responding to that subset of Twitter, which is smart, but it makes it feel like we've been beating this drum for a long time. Mm -hmm. Only now is it realized that there's egg on its face that it needs to wipe off. Yeah. Why now? Shotlink has been in place, the system, for 15 plus years. Partly why now is something that has me a little bit bothered by this. And it's the fact that Bryson DeChambeau is weird. So the PGA Tour, which is the most anti-weird community of people is just rearing to go, you know, just to, con it seems like a convenient excuse to gang up on this guy. Sure. You see it happen with JB Holmes, but people really take a greater delight in doing this to Bryson DeChambeau. Mm -hmm. I think that's messed up. I think you need to be clear about your objections with Bryson. If your problem with him is that he's taking an insane amount of time on this putt, valid. You could see Justin Thomas in the background, like literally his brain is exploding waiting for Bryson to hit this putt. But if your problem is like, oh, this guy's a dork, he's like a scientist, he's like a fake physicist, you know, that's a different issue altogether. You cannot like him for that reason, but to 
blend that into the whole pace of play thing does everyone a disservice. Has Bryson bailed himself out in his public comments on the issue? Oh. No way. Well, he has not made it easy for himself. You want, let's get to some good and bad solutions. The bad solution, as posed on the golf.com Instagram page, give everyone golf carts. Yeah. Bad, bad, bad solution. Bad. If you want to hate Bryson DeChambeau's stance on this, that's a good place to start. Better solution. Ban green books altogether. Yeah. When I mean, he, look at his quote mm-hmm. when he was trying to explain himself. Look at his quote. It was a dare. It was a very difficult read. It was on a bit of a crown. Trying to read it in the best of my ability, I couldn't figure out a way to play it four inches out because that's what the book said, mm-hmm. and that didn't make sense to my eyes. He's living by the book. Living the by the bi- book. The Bible of mm-hmm. Bryson. It doesn't work for everybody that way, and that wasn't how it used to be. That's not how this game has always been. No, these green books are guidelines, like the Bible in some ways. <laughs> in many ways. <laughs> One of my one of my core concerns with this is that I'm afraid what we're going to find from all this shot link data is going to be a little unimpressive. Like mm-hmm. we're right now, the PGA Tour's guidelines, you were able to get your hands on how players were supposed to play mm-hmm. throughout Northern Trust at Liberty National. 15 minutes for this hole, 16 yep. minutes for that hole, 18 minutes for par fives, maybe 13 for par threes. It all ends up being about 15 minutes a hole for threesomes. Four hours, 35 minutes. That's the goal. That's not that high a bar to clear. No, but what I'm afraid is that we're going to find Kevin Kisner go out there and play with Justin Thomas and Jordan Spieth. They're going to finish on their own, controlled setting, maybe in four hours. Kiz will shoot 70. That's fine. Bryson goes out and plays with a couple other people, four hours and 30 minutes, kind of in under the under the bar to clear, he shoots 67. I, I just don't think that we're going to be wowed by the information in there. Mm-hmm. We're going to be like, you know what, Bryson, you're at fault because you took 10 more minutes than Kevin Kisner. How about this? Do you think this is a problem? Do you think slow play is a big problem in golf? Because Brandel Shambly is among those saying he thinks this is actually not one of golf's bigger problems. It's a problem because it's taking me six hours to play a Saturday round at Van Cortlandt Park in yes, the Bronx. Yes, that is a problem. And, it, and like you said, it's very easy to pick on one of golf's most polarizing figures who believes things and isn't bailing himself out in his public comments, Bryson DeChambeau. It's easy to like to cherry pick this big issue of slow play in the game at large, in the game around the world, and be like, that's why. Bryson, you're a leader, and mm-hmm. you're taking two minutes to read a putt. That's why people are playing slow in my Saturday foursome. Yeah, These two things are different. There needs to be a little bit of like a demarcation here, but it can still start with the people that are on TV paid to do it for millions of dollars. Yeah, and Bryson actually kept going back to that of being an entertainer. I guess maybe that is where people not liking him for being weird does intersect. You know, people get irritated or annoyed when Bryson's on their screen for too long. They get irritated when Patrick Cantlay is standing over the ball having trouble pulling the trigger. They get irritated when J.B. Holmes is plumb bobbing one-foot putts. So I guess there is an element, just don't annoy the viewer. And James Hahn tweeted out one argument that's a little bit on Golf Channel. They sat there and watched, uh, mm-hmm. not Dylan chair. they sat there and they watched Bryson DeChambeau for nearly three minutes over one putt. For the record, Dylan chair, fast player. Notably good, but fast adjacent to this whole pace of play story was what I like to call this tour as in the NBA being a ridiculous league with all things happening transactions league 12 months out of the year. The NBA is crazy in many ways. Golf is getting a little bit crazy. One thing that we saw as a result of the pace of play is like petty wars on the PGA Tour. Eddie Pepperell, like you said, calls Bryson DeChambeau a twit. Brooks Kepka sounded off through the media. Rory McIlroy sounds off to the media. Bryson goes to 
Brooks's caddy and says, hey, if your guy's going to say something, say it to my face. Justin Thomas calls Bryson slow. Bryson defends himself constantly on the golf.com Instagram comments. Our petty wars. Big week for the .com mentions, by the way. Our petty wars a good thing for the PGA Tour. Oh my God, this whole thing is, this is pace of play a problem? Maybe, but for now, it's it's a positive. This weekend ruled and not because of the action. Look, Patrick Reed, super compelling winner. The way the tournament went down, I personally was not, you know, super dialed in. But this stuff is awesome. This is the way sports are meant to be consumed in our year 2019. Yeah. Bite-sized issues things that can be spun into larger questions about the sport yeah. personalities pinpointing issues actually clashing i mean think about the people you have involved this week brooks kepka bryson DeChambeau, patrick reed brandel shambley Brando. my guy i mean this is good stuff yeah they're stirring the pot the one thing that i'm i guess we're going to add a little truth to this is that i think this is as contentious as it'll ever really be you know justin thomas spoke out about bryson but you look at the quotes that justin thomas had he is being as careful as cookie cutter Mm -hmm. as he can be. He says, I like Bryson as a person, but he's a slow golfer. And I hate (laughs) saying this because I don't want Bryson to think that I'm throwing him under the bus or anything like that. It's just unfortunate where the pace of play is at the game in the moment. Like he is being so diplomatic, so classic PGA Tour, but that's exactly who Justin Thomas is right now. Mm -hmm. He did that for JB Holmes last year. When J.B. Holmes was being put on blast for his slow play. Well, at yeah, I mean, that's his boy, too. The Kentucky guys, they got the same coach. That Yeah. So all I'm saying is that's no much No one can fun. go full blast, yeah. especially when they're on the same, you know, Ryder Cup teams. Even yep. Big Bad Brooks Kepka started walking back some of his comments because he has just shredded Bryson, <laughs> whether or not by name, for months and months. And, you know, basically called him a nerd. Yesterday in his press conference, he said, look, I used Bryson's name once. I know he always feels like I'm talking about him. And it's like, don't treat us like we're idiots, yeah, Brooks. You were. We know, you we were know you've been him. talking about him. But even he, I think, maybe started to feel bad for Bryson or, or felt like people were people were piling on. Sure. So even Brooks started to dial it back a little bit. The mom mentality is very real. But this happened at the Ryder Cup. Things boiled over in Paris this year. And then we were in front of the players who had boiled over days later. And they're like, no, it was all good. Nothing happened. PJ Tour players are the kings of walking it back. But you have to remember who they are, right? They're individuals. They're individual athletes worth hundreds of millions of dollars. They're worth millions of dollars to themselves, their family, their agents, their brands, other brands that sponsor them. Like It does them little to no good to be bitter about Bryson's slow play to call him out like it does them very little good to be that guy so they are the kings of the walk back yeah i think the point of that is that this is not like a, a one-on-one sport it so rarely is and when it is that may be the best version of the sport but that's when it's most true i mean that is when these guys are showing off their true emotions it's right? competition yeah that feels that's that's like the nba look you see these playoff series in the nba that's when things get chippy because it's these teams going at each other every night for five six seven games over the span of a couple of weeks you don't get that in golf we had like a weird moment at the putting green that Eamon Lynch tweeted about how mm-hmm. bryson came through and said this to his caddy and brooks approached him like I think Brooks could play a pretty big role in all of this because he's the best damn player in the world. He is the, the, the guy who is a major monster, so to say. And Tiger and Phil, they're not getting involved in any of this. Right. You know who's not saying anything about pace of play? 
Coast guys right now. <laughs> Rory has got a, a, a number of chips at the table. Mm-hmm. He says stuff. He's been saying it all year. He said it to players. He said it this week. I think this could be a moment in which Rory, Brooks, probably not Spieth and JT. Those guys don't seem to like get into this. But those guys who feel like they have a voice, they have enough majors, they have enough wins, enough clout, they can lay the hammer down a little bit. And I think we're all better off because of it. I would like to say something about size. And I think that Brooks Kepka's size overrated, slightly overrated. Bryson DeChambeau's size underrated. I think people look at that match, that show putting green showdown, as you know, Kepka is minus a thousand. I don't see it that way. Bryson's got this kind of country strong thing to him. Better reach, better. I don't know who's who's angrier because that's a really important component. But I think this would actually be a pretty compelling showdown. I will gladly stand in Brooks Kepka's corner. You can hang out with Bryson. We'll have to ask him when he comes on the pod. Could you beat up Brooks Kepka? <laughs> Doubt it. One person that we have somehow not even really talked about yet, Sean, Tiger Woods. Yeah. We sit here Monday afternoon wondering what is going to happen to Tiger Woods this week, but I I want your reaction on what last week felt like to you. Did it, did that feel like a natural uh, next step the way the season has gone, or did it feel like something else altogether? To me, trying to forever be a Tiger realist, it did feel natural in a way because he's given us so many instances over the past couple of months where he's like you know what it's tough to wake up on those cold mornings he said it at pebble he said it at port rush he's like i can't quite get my body to do this i've been telling you guys this is the new norm and so when he went out and ripped it and you follow him around on tuesday afternoon and he's trying to hang up there and hit drives like dj and brooks this felt like a bit of a reaction to that and whether they're like directly related or not it's impossible for us to tell, mm-hmm. but this guy has been trending downward ever since the masters. Yeah. That's just the truth. We've barely seen him. And when we have seen him, it's not been too special. What a crazy win, by the way, the masters crazier and crazier every day. Yeah. You know, I have a question. Are you going to come that. in here with your limited field no, commentary? No, no. What if he didn't win the masters? What mm. if he hit it into race Creek instead of Molinari or Kepka wow. and Tiger loses by one? Do we still go down the same path? Does his like celebration period, after the Masters, does it linger as long or does he go and play the Wells Fargo down in Charlotte? Yeah. I think things change. <laughs> things changed at Ray's Creek. And it's funny because that happens to a lot of PGA Tour years, to a lot of players. It changed Jordan Speed's career. Weird things happen there. And I think that we see a different Tiger this year if he doesn't win the Masters. But is the Masters enough? You yeah, know, I mean, you know, like two months or two duh, years ago. Yeah, it's enough. But like the golf populace is never satisfied. Two years ago, if we would have seen Tiger playing healthy, swinging, making golf swings, strong, hitting the ball pretty far, we'd be like thrilled. It's so great to have you back. You're the greatest player ever. And then he goes out and wins. And immediately, you and I are proponent of this in some ways. We immediately think, oh, well, that's 15. How about 16? Mm-hmm. What about 18? Mm-hmm. We're never satisfied. At this point, if he never took another golf swing again, we're all good, right? Like we have to be all good with this. We have to be. Here's the thing with Tiger and and he has spoken pretty openly about how this Masters like it took more out of him than he realized it would. I still don't totally understand that. No, I don't either. But I do think there's an element of this may be the first time he has ever enjoyed winning a golf tournament. Yeah. Truly enjoyed at least a major championship. I know he enjoyed the winning the Tour Championship last year, but 
to really sit back and feel like he's accomplished something. I mean, there's that famous story of him winning uh, a major, you know, back in the early part of his career and Elon asking, oh, should we bring everyone over? Should we throw a party? Tiger said, no, we're supposed to win. This is what's supposed to happen. You know, you don't go crazy. I talked to Graham McDowell at the Open Championship. Someone asked him, there was a little media scrum. Someone asked him, oh, does he see... Where, where does he see Shane Lowry going from here? And he said, well, look, it depends. When Rory wins one major, people think, oh, he should win 10 majors. He was like, look, when I won a major, I didn't necessarily see more majors in my yeah. future. This yeah. is a really like revealing comment. He was like, I, I thought that might be it for me. Obviously, Tiger is in that first category, the Rory category. But we've seen it. We saw him win this Masters. And we all immediately thought, oh, you know, where are the next five majors going to come from when maybe it's closer to that other category of wow he won that one that yeah, was the i'm not going to apologize for that though he looked good he has still looked good when you are a legend in the game when you go out and do these things you win x amount of majors before you're 25 or before you're 30 i will not apologize for asking you where you will rank Ches Reeve was contending at Pebble Beach, and if he would have won at Pebble Beach, we would not be saying, where's Ches Reeve's second major coming? We would not ask the question. That's how it goes. We would all be better <laughs> off for Ches Reeve being a major winner, though. But damn it, if Brooks Kepka won at Pebble Beach, we'd be like, is this one of the greatest players of all time? And that's, that's what happens. So I will never apologize for saying, what about number 16 after Tiger won number 15? But that was how it was. So I just and want to make sure that, like, we're aware that this, this thing eventually comes to a close. We don't know how many swings are there left in his body. It might be this like ticking time bomb where there are like 10,000 more swings in Tiger's body. One concrete thing, because this is you know somewhat abstract what we're talking about, this trip to Asia that he took right after the U.S. Open. I don't buy this. It sounded awesome. Like I think this was a really important personal moment for him. I think he got a little tweaked over there. You got a little talked about riding elephants. You know what's good for your back? Not (laughs) riding an elephant. Sure. Um, It sounded like there was a little bit more collateral damage that came out of that trip, just physically, that wear and tear, than I think Tiger led on to. Yeah, I mean, at this point, we have no evidence to prove you wrong. I just don't buy that if he can go out there and grind to win a golf tournament that he can't vacation with his family. Is that what your family vacations look like? Elefante Grande? No, sadly, unfortunately not. But let's move on to your interview with Dylan Fratelli. What did you like from it? Well, this was a fun one because, first of all, well, speaking of Tiger, we walked in. This was recorded uh, just before the start of the Northern Trust. Wednesday afternoon, we were looking for a place to do it. Walked into the locker room. There's Tiger, sure enough, getting major treatment, getting worked on. And Dylan and I found one quiet place, which was the sauna. (laughs) Um, we talked through, uh, this was, you know, maybe the first Dylan Dylan collaboration in you know, podcast history, but we talked through a few things. He's, he's an interesting guy, South African guy, went to school with Jordan Spieth. They spent a year together at Texas and then took very different routes to get to the PGA tour. So, uh, he's got Spieth stories. He he played the challenge tour with Brooks Kepka. And he's a very thoughtful guy. So with that in mind... Did you ask him about the sunglasses that he wears? I didn't. We'll have to follow up you with that. You kind of had one job there for my purposes. Uh, one, yeah, you know, the sunglasses. You, you want to make the guy feel comfortable. So with that introduction, let's send it over to the sauna at Liberty National Golf Club. I'm here with Dylan Fratelli, PGA Tour winner, John Deere Classic winner. And we're here at the Northern Trust in the sauna. Luckily, it's not on right now, but it's the quietest place we could find on property. Dylan, how are you feeling this week? What's happening? What's going on? 
Uh, feeling pretty good. I'm excited for the playoffs, obviously, and had one week off after a long four or five week stint that saw me win and go over to the Open and play well there. But just trying to keep the ball rolling from those good results. And physically, I feel good. Mentally, I feel good. And just trying to maximize the final bit of the season. So obviously, you've become a, uh, a bigger and bigger name on tour these last few years. But just to kind of start at the beginning, you, you grew up in South Africa. You're from Johannesburg? Yeah, correct. I grew up, I was born in Johannesburg, spent half my childhood there, half in Pretoria, but it's almost the same cities now, being so close together. And how'd you get into the game? My dad, from a young age, he, he kind of just had me on the field at school or in our garden at home, just chipping and messing around. And then I guess when I was seven or eight, I remember going to the driving range with him and being really eager on a Sunday. That was the deal. Sundays was reserved for golf. So I'd wake him up early and try and go and hit as many balls on the range as I could. And he would always, come on, we got to go now. I would run out and grab a few more balls and hit more. So those are my early memories. But then from there, just whacked it around, played some junior golf in South Africa and then took it seriously, I guess, from the age of about 15. Sounds like the motivation came from your side then rather than like from your parents or something. Yeah, for sure. I was playing, I mean, all kinds of sports growing up. I played four sports at state level in South Africa, I was captain of the soccer and field hockey team my under 13 year primary school year, final year of primary school. And after that, I figured, hey, I'm pretty good at those two sports plus cricket plus tennis. And I just figured that's all well and good. But if I reach 18 years old and I'm kind of good at all of them, it's not really worth much. So luckily at 15, I decided to focus solely on golf. I managed to, I actually left my, my high school and did a private homeschooling tutoring type thing to focus on the golf. I, I think it was the best thing for me. It helped me really basically yeah. sped everything up and I became mm-hmm. a much better golfer in a much shorter time. Do you think that that multi-sport background helped you as a golfer though? Because, you know, I, I know there's always this debate about specialization versus playing a bunch of different sports and what that balance is. For sure. I'm, I'm an advocate for playing as many sports, as many different sports as you can growing up. So many parents and coaches and kids even have this mindset that, oh, you should just focus as much as you, as much as you can, as much of your time as you can on one sport. And I think that's, that's totally incorrect. Tiger Woods is the outlier. He's the one guy that did that, that basically willed himself in one arena to be the best in the world. But if you look at every other top golfer right now, and I can't speak for other sports, but Every other top golfer has some background in other sports where they either excelled or they learned some skills that translated into golf. I mean, I know my background from team sport, from soccer, baseball. I mean, any sport you can think of, field hockey, a lot of things I picked up there, maybe on the mental side, not so much on the physical side, has helped me in the game of golf. I mean, resiliency, focus, all those good things, they translate over sporting codes, even over, I guess, from business to sport. I've chatted to many other people and things that you learn in different fields or different facets of life definitely can help if you if you let it obviously golf is a big sport in south africa there's a a history of great players from south africa did you have idols in the game growing up or or did you have american idols or what was the mix there so i'd never been one for having idols per se but obviously i looked up to people i can remember early on watching the Open and the Masters as a sort of 8, 9, 10-year-old and seeing Ernie Els, Ratif Horsen, those guys were competing in majors and those are the only tournaments I really watched. So that kind of set the bar for me like, hey, these guys are from South Africa. Like, Ernie's from Johannesburg. Like, if he can do this, then I guess any kid from South Africa could do it. But then beyond that, I obviously when I got into the game, Ernie and Ratif were still at their height, but there was almost a generational gap there and 
guys like Trevor Immelman, Tim Clark, and then in recent years, uh, Louis Ostazen and Charles Swatzel, those are the guys I kind of looked at like, hang on, if they're, if they're doing this, they're winning, they're doing well. And then Brandon Grace, another one who's two, three years above me, all these guys are doing amazing things. Surely I can do that too. And that kind of set the bar for me and, and helped me to just stay the course and keep doing what I'm doing. Did you ever have any run-ins with those guys growing up when you were in South Africa? So early on, I didn't. So when I was about 16, 15, 16, when I left school and did the private tutoring thing, I signed on with a coach called Duellen van Leeuwen in Centurion, and he had a, a bunch of young pros. So George Kutsia, Louis de Yaga, uh, Darren Fickart was another one that used to practice there every now and then. So I spent a lot of time with George and Louis and other guys while they were amateurs transitioning into the pro game. And then they went on to win on the Sunshine Tour and do well early on while I was still a junior. So it was a nice breeding ground for me to see how these guys went about their business, how they practiced, what they did. And I can remember learning so much from George, whether it's bunker play, putting. George is one of the best short games in Europe, South Africa, in the world, really. And and the time that I spent there just honing my game as a 16, 17, 18-year-old, I look back now, I was like, what a treat to have those guys who are top South African pros now practicing with a 16-year-old junior slash amateur trying to learn the game. And, and that was, I guess, huge in my fundamentals, learning the game and understanding how to play it. So tell me how you got from there then to the University of Texas. So I, I always had my mind on getting an education. My mother's a teacher and I figured, you know what, it's not a set thing that I'll be able to play professional golf. So what's the good backup? And, and that would be studying. In South Africa, you can't really go in and get a serious degree and play golf at the same time. The course load's way too heavy. So researched the college system in the States and looked at the PGA Tour and 70, 80% of the guys had done the college route. So that seemed like a no-brainer to head over here. And luckily, I managed to get a scholarship and, and spend a few years. Yeah. And, and what was Texas like? You had a sick college team when you were there um at least one year you were national champions um what do you remember about that season well actually give us just the rundown of the roster while you were there so i came in texas was a top 30 top 30 40 program the last two years that i'd watched them and i figured hey that'd be a good place for me to go i, I had some other offers at smaller schools but figured let's test myself in a bigger pool tough opposition and got to texas immediately like set my mark i was number two on the team charlie holland who was a usm semi-finalist the summer before i came was our number one and i pretty much filled into that number two slot straight away and that was a huge confidence boost for me i managed to win my freshman year in puerto rico and beat a cool field that had ricky fowler oklahoma state a few guys so that was a cool way to start the year off that was in the fall and then from there it was just a steady rise we kind of moved from that 30 40 range up into the 20 25 range by the end of the year then my sophomore year got Cody Gribble, now the top recruit in the country, and again, pushed forward again into the sort of top 10, 20 range. And then by the time I was a senior, we had Spieth join the team. And that was almost the final piece that we needed to project ourselves into like national championship contention. And that was a really cool addition to the team. We had a nice group of young guys, Cody Gribble, Tony Hakula, Julio Vegas, and Spieth came in. I mean, most highly recruited player probably in the last five years. And he played great. I played great and somehow we managed to sneak away with the national championship along with, I think, eight other wins during that season. Yeah, I mean, what was that like? Because you were a senior at this point, right? So you're a senior, you're you're hitting your stride, it seems like, on the team in your career. What's it like to have Jordan Spieth come in and join you on the team? Yeah, I was, I was a two-time All-American, like number one on the team and Spieth came in and had a bit of a chip on his shoulder, like, oh, I'm number one recruit, I'm a great player, which he was. And I just looked like, hang on, kid, like you kind of have to prove yourself. <laughs> this this is a new arena here. Yes, you've dominated junior golf and 
a bit of amateur golf in the states but i'm not gonna let you just like take over the show here but luckily it was we was both, there tension there or what was the the feeling there, there was a slight bit of tension i would say but it was good it was something that drove us daily whether it's on the practice round or in qualifying or on the range we would push each other and that I think Coach Fields has spoken to that in, in many other interviews subsequently. He said the thing that made that team great was Spieth and I pushed each other so hard. We were ranked number one and two throughout the season until Justin Thomas took over in like February, March of the springtime. And that pushed the rest of the guys. We pushed so far ahead of the guys on our team that they had to kind of pick their game up and follow us. So we set the benchmark. They followed us. And that sort of competition between the two of us drove the team to where we finished the year. And I've heard a, a mention of a story of you getting some inspiration from a roommate of yours who was on the football team. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. So my best friend, Travis Smith, he was a kicker at Texas, a uh, backup kicker, not a starter. But I came back from a tournament my junior year. We were living in a house with some other football players. And he said, Dill, uh, how'd it go? I was like, oh, no, it was a good tournament. I finished like 18th, 20th. And he looked at me like, huh? What do you mean? Like, I said, oh, it's okay. And he goes, you're Dylan Fratelli. You're okay with 18th place? Like, what do you mean? I was like oh gosh you're right that was kind of a watershed moment for me my junior year and managed to kick it into gear in the spring and sneak into all-american status at the end of that junior year but yeah that was a cool reminder from a good friend who still remains a really good friend and i guess a puzzle in my career right now yeah and so did you and and jordan turn pro then the same year yeah spieth played the full semester of his sophomore year and then turned pro in the january so i had I guess six, seven months of pro golf before he turned pro, but we took, I guess, really different paths to where we are right now. I went back to Europe and South Africa and had to play there. Sadly, I didn't get any invitations or starts in the US and I missed tour school that year. So I had status in Europe and got status in South Africa. So you got to play where you've got status and where you can earn money. And, and I mean, I wouldn't trade that for anything. It would have been nice to just waltz into a pro career and get invites on the PGA tour or even play on the web.com and not have to move back to South Africa or Europe, but it is what it is. And I, I believe I'm a stronger golfer and a more well-rounded person because of all those excursions around Europe and Asia and Africa. Yeah. I mean, so you say you wouldn't trade it, but at the time that must be tough, right? See your teammate who you're probably competing with day in and day out in practice. And then he sort of gets a the golden ticket to, to the next round, obviously had to play great to earn it. But that, I mean, that that's gotta be tricky. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I would say I didn't hold any grudges. I didn't feel bad about it at the time because I was so focused on my pro career and I'd done well. I won my first year on the Challenge Tour, but sort of year two, three, four, I'm looking at it like, oh, Spieth's won a major now and Justin Thomas got invites as well. And I was second and third on the rankings right behind those guys coming out of college as a senior. And I really didn't get any opportunities that they did, but I just figured, look, I competed with them at one stage. I know my game's good enough, so... Law of averages says if I keep playing to my potential, I'm going to move up. I'm going to, baseball analogy, go from single A, well, double A, triple A, you're going to move up to the majors at some stage. I just need to stay the course and, and keep working on my game. So I try to not let it be a negative, but there were times where I was, I guess, frustrated. And obviously income and earnings and sponsorship and, and everything plays a huge part in that. So I'm obviously playing catch up now that I'm on the PJ Tour, but I've made it here now and I wouldn't trade any of my experiences. So those next few years, you, you win on the Challenge Tour in 2013. Um, you win again in 2016 on the Challenge Tour. Take me through the, the highs and lows of that moment or of that, of that stretch in your career. Was there one particular moment where you thought, okay, I'm doing this. This is working out. This is absolutely my future. I would say that win on the Challenge Tour was just like a, 
okay, cool, I can compete here. I still felt really unfamiliar with the pro game. I would say even throughout that 2014, 2015 year, I had the Sunshine Tour where I could go back and play in South Africa and not to say the competition is not strong back there, but I was able to earn some money that could still, luckily I had Nike as a sponsor throughout this whole situation and that helped big time. But 14 and 15, I think I barely broke even 14 and 15. I made a little bit of money, but it was it was a tough time and I really had to figure out, hey, do I want to do this? I thought about going back to school and getting an MBA or studying a little more and then really so you had real game. thoughts that you know maybe to take some time away yeah I, I just i wasn't enjoying it it was i knew what it took to get back to where i was and i looked at it and i was like do i really want to devote this much time this much effort to something that may not turn out to be good and in the end i guess listening to my buddy travis's words again like dude you're good enough like just believe it and focus and just do the work that you normally do and it'll turn out right so luckily the good thing was i wasn't getting into a lot of tournaments on the challenge tour so i spent time back in austin i started working with chuck cook for my full long game he just did short game while i was in college but i doubled down on chuck and he helped out a lot managed to get my game in shape technically and from there i just progressed the 15 season was a step in the right direction i'd still made some cuts in south africa and challenge tour and then 16 was a really good year for me on the challenge tour and obviously that was probably the time that I figured out, hey, I can do this. When I won the Rolex tournament, which is an invitation on the challenge tour, that was kind of the, hey, second win on the challenge tour. I can see the trajectory of my career and I know I've hit that low point before. So I'm never going to let that happen again. I learned the pitfalls that I had, all the things that culminated in those bad results or those tough times. I've seen it before. I know what caused it and it's never going to happen again. What's life like on the challenge tour? Because, you know, I know Brooks Kepka has told some wild stories of traveling and the it obviously doesn't have the same glamour of the PGA Tour week in and week out. Do you have any, you know, wild experiences, crazy stories from the challenge tour life? I mean, yeah, there were, there were tons. It's a uh... It's a fun place. You obviously have different nationalities, different guys mixing and young guys especially. But I remember I roomed with Brooks a few times that 2014, uh, yeah, 2014 year. And we were leaving La Gomera, which is the Canary Islands off of Spain, flying back. He'd won the tournament and we fly in this low cost budget airline. He's got a trophy with him and he had, he played like four or five in a row. So he had a bunch of stuff with him and threw it all in his travel bag and his golf bag. The guy weighs the bag and he's like, uh, sir, you're like seven kilograms or eight kilograms over the allowance. And he's like, so what? He's like, that's going to be like 35 euros per kilogram. And I looked at him. I was like, dude, like just like throw it away. Like it's just golf balls and shoes and stuff. You don't, he's like, whatever. And he just handed his credit card over like no fuss. Like it was like 90 euros or a hundred euros for the ticket. I think he paid 300 euros or 250 euros for the bags is that just confidence or what is he that? just he just won he didn't care he's like i don't it's just money whatever and i was like whoa dude that's i'd be like trying to nickel and dime and save as much as i could week to week but no there are tons of cool experiences we had and i mean the travels is crazy we went to kazakhstan i once did a stint from i can't remember where we exactly went from but made it to kazakhstan and had to decide whether i was going back on an invite to the alfred daniel championship in scotland or going to fiji the next week for the european tour event so i was sitting in the middle of kazakhstan on a saturday evening not knowing whether i was flying seven or eight hours to scotland <laughs> or seven or eight hours the other way to fiji so stuff like that just i don't know it's cool memories and amazing to see what i've done now that i'm in the states it's like a oh, cool two three hour flight here and there it's nothing compared to that yeah so fast forward through your wins on the european tour full status now to this year you're sitting in decent position in the you know on the money list in the fedex cup rankings 
Uh, you said you started keeping a, a diary or, or writing, you know, more stuff about your golf game, about your days. What was that like? What was the inspiration for that? So I'd always, early on in my career, I'd set goals and I had little bullet points when I was a junior, like make the national under 16 South African team, under 18 team and smaller goals in between that. And I kind of got away from that at the end of my college career and into the pros. I was like, ah, you know, I'll just work on it and, and just figure it out and see where I end up. But about two, three months ago, I thought, hang on. I actually, I think I saw Tommy Fleetwood with a little diary journal thing last year sometime and it kind of stuck in my head and I was like maybe I should do that I've always had notes on my phone and I've written things down but never really done it pen on paper and for my birthday I mentioned it to my manager Tim Dravik and he told his nephew his nephew actually bought me a cool little diary so I was like okay I've got the diary now now I just need to put pen on paper and start using it so I think it was it was the first week the Hartford was the first time I used it and I wrote some notes down and had a lesson with Chuck Cook, my coach, the previous week. So I wrote some notes down from the lesson and then notes after the Hartford week. And then from there, it just kind of things clicked together. I'd put in a lot of hard work before that trip. We went to, I guess, Detroit and then Minnesota. And my game really came together. I started writing more notes. And then come three weeks later, John Deere, everything clicks and I end up winning. So it's just been that constant keeping your finger on every facet, trying to remember the good things, write down some of the bad things. And it's just a constant... I guess, bit of work that you have to put in. And that's a cool way to remind yourself of the good things and some of the bad things. Yeah. And you put one of these entries on Instagram. You said, fade out the stress of the top 20, top 125. You will get back to the PGA tour. Was that, you know, I mean, this was written in cursive, first of all, which I thought was interesting. (laughs) No one writes in cursive anymore, but was this a significant kind of point? Yeah, that was probably the, I don't know how to describe it, but that was the fix I needed to reach my potential. I was playing good golf. I had the technique. I had everything there besides the mental mental side. And I figured out that, hey, all it is is the stress. Stuff on my shoulders, sitting there, top 125. It's such a huge thing. It clears you up. You can make a schedule next year. You won't have to go to Corn Ferry Tour Finals. Like All this stuff is just weighing on my shoulders. And I figured, you know what? Let's just write this down. I just thought, let's get it out. And that was almost like a cathartic moment, just like, taken it off my shoulders now and now I can just focus so as soon as that moment came and the next week at John Deere well it was two weeks later I guess funny thing was it says I'll get back to the PGA Tour I'm on the PGA Tour You're on I, it. I wrote like so in my own mind yeah. I'd seen that I was off the tour but hey Dill, you've still got tournaments to play you've still got an opportunity to get back into the 125 so now I look back and it's like you see what a mental space you were in and it's kind of cloudy and tough to get through but luckily I have the the wherewithal and the team and my sports psych back in San Diego as well helped a lot with that stuff. So it's a cool way to look back and having written it down now, it's like, okay, that stuff does matter. When it comes to equipment, are you um, as detail oriented as, you know, working out and the mental side of things? Equipment side, I'm pro- it's probably the least thing I'm worried about. I've got the Callaway guys on it and they bring me anything new or something that they think that'll help me. But I haven't tweaked anything in my bag since February, March this year. Once I got the new driver in play, it took probably two, three months of testing for me to be happy with that new driver. And What do you so, have in the bag? So we'll start from the bottom and work up. I've got Vokey wedges, slob wedge sandwich. Then I've got the Callaway gap wedge, pitching wedge through, I guess, three iron. I switch out the three, four iron every now and then. That's the old X-forged irons. And then got a five wood three wood and a driver the five wood is actually the old um the old version five wood from last year so that's that they haven't tried to take that out of my hands i just love that club so 
then I got the plain old three wood, plain old driver, nothing too fancy. I mean, I could run you through tensei shaft. There's a few <laughs> different technical aspects of it, but nothing that fancy. I don't tweak. I don't change. I've had that same bag, as I say, since March. So the Callaway guys just see me on the range. Hey, how's it going? No, oh, cool. All good. And they're the happiest because they don't have to do much work with me, but I'm, I'm super happy with that relationship. They've been great. They've really expanded my game since June last year. I've actually improved because of those equipment changes and the new ball i switched to the double star chrome soft and it's i mean it's an amazing ball i'm able to spin it now with the short wedges and stuff that i couldn't do back in the day with other equipment companies balls i mean you've won before you've won at every level that you've played at really yeah was there something different about winning on the pga tour i would say nothing different in the process nothing different in the achieving it but obviously afterwards the perks and the just the the ease that everything now comes from that win is just, is just huge. I mean, winning on the European tour, cool, two-year exemption. Winning on the Challenge tour, cool, one-year exemption. Winning in college, okay, might get some sponsors out of this now. And then winning as a junior, getting yourself a scholarship into college. Those are all big things. But when you get two years of basically planning your life, planning ahead, you obviously get a bit of money involved with that. You get some cool perks. It's it's just amazing what doors open and i'm still seeing those doors open now i haven't really i guess gone the whole length and breadth of it but you know it's definitely an amazing feeling and i hope i can do this more often now and in bigger moments hopefully yeah you're on the pga tour now you already were but now you're very much on the pga tour how did you celebrate that win because you had to head over to the the open championship right afterwards yeah that was i mean most people that know me they know i don't drink they know i don't really like to party too much but got on the flight i had two hours of media and, and stuff to do and they obviously held the plane waiting for me we jumped on the plane there and had i had a little tequila to start i've actually explored alcohol a little bit now and i, I do enjoy tequila so started sipping that and then had some champagne as soon as we got up to altitude and then my caddy and my trainer oh, nick no. catterall and john my caddy brought me out. it was a shot but it was like it was as much as I was sipping on in the in the first part of the flight and forced us to down it. But yeah, that was an awesome, awesome moment. It hits you harder at altitude. For sure it does. For sure it does. But no, that was a fun moment. Celebrated with my caddy and my trainer, two guys that have been with me now on the PJ Tour and been a huge piece of the puzzle. And I went to sleep a couple hours later feeling really good and woke up in Scotland ready for an open championship, my third one in a row and my most fruitful one so far. What, what do you think is the biggest misconception about life on the pga tour because now you're you know, i don't want to say you're a you know a big time veteran but you've spent some time out here yeah it's crazy to think last year i played in 11 pga tour events through top 50 world golf rankings and a couple invites i got but this year has been really cool to just get to know the guys on tour and and having seen that i haven't met everybody yet but just to see the different characters and and see how everything works i'd say that the biggest misconception is probably how glamorous or how amazing everything is i mean trust me it is it's it's awesome everything gets catered to you but it's still i mean you're still normal guys i go out with a buddy of mine martin trainer we go out for dinners and luckily we don't get recognized too much but we're just going to regular old restaurants last week's podcast guest in fact martin trainer yeah yeah martin loves his curry places so we try and find indian places in town and it's really just a regular old existence i obviously if you win majors and stuff maybe that brings some other perks but we're just out there playing golf, traveling, working out, doing the best we can to get better each week. And I would say it's probably a better life to live with your wife or girlfriend stationary, still not having to 
travel everywhere but i wouldn't trade it for anything because this is what i'm used to since i was a kid i've been traveling and playing golf and do you have a little like crew on tour yet or it just depends on who's there during given week i saw you played with bryson yesterday yeah bryson had about 12 people walking around with us on the golf <laughs> he has course. the the biggest entourage out here it was crazy he had his uh flight scope team putting the flight scope down for every shot and it's like i don't even know who the 12 people were there were two media people from his sponsors and I, i'm not sure but no, my circle's really small. I've got my trainer, Nick Catterall. He's also my physio. So he's at about three quarters of the events each each year on the PGA Tour. And then Coach Chuck Cook will come out maybe four or five tournaments a year. And then my manager, Tim Drabeck, he's in Buffalo. He has a full-time job anyway. So he can sneak away for a couple majors in big tournaments. But I really keep it small. I try and get family out every now and then. But most of the time, I like to just travel myself and get stuff done on my own. And obviously, I have lots of support back in Austin, Texas. They'll drive in or fly into any close tournaments to to Texas. But yeah, I keep it small right now. It's tough to keep track of my own life and not to have to worry about other people. So now as a tour winner, like where does it go from here? What is on your horizon because i think it would be easy to have a little bit of a letdown after your win you secure your status all this stuff but you know what what is driving you forward yeah now? that's i mean that's honestly that's something that worries me i'm not saying it keeps me up at night but it's something that hey i don't want to become lackadaisical now and just kind of sit back and oh, i'll make the odd cut I, i'm suddenly you're doing interviews and saunas and taking it easy <laughs> living the fancy life yeah no i i'm not one for letting off as i mentioned i had that low point in 2014 2015 and i know what caused that so i'm not going to let that happen again but probably the biggest thing that's driving me now is the physical side i've got nick catterall my trainer and this winning frees me up to take some weeks off and to do some off-season training we really haven't had any time to do some heavy heavy lifting some proper training it's all been in tournament and a couple weeks off so now i'm going to sit down with nick we'll find some some spots where we can do some proper lifting work and, and get stronger in the gym that's probably my biggest focus i might make some tweaks on the equipment side as well as some new equipment comes through next year but it's really just about staying focused staying busy and playing tournaments i thought about oh let's take six weeks off or something and i thought now nah, I'm, I'm gonna go crazy <laughs> go if crazy. i take that what much do you time. do with your downtime you said you don't like having nothing to do you don't like sitting still you said you like I, what I, do you do when you relax i struggle with downtime so when i go back to austin i literally just stay in my house i just watch tv clean the place organize my closet got tons of nike stuff that always comes in and i have to go through it so i just chill everyone's like oh you don't want to go to the lake you don't i'm like no i'm outdoors seven eight days or seven eight hours a day why would i want to go outside in my free time so i just decompress the first few days and then my big passion outside of golf is surfing so if i could i'd love to take a surf trip at some stage i need to figure that out maybe before maui next year go to hawaii i've got some friends there so surfing i want to get into fishing obviously that correlates with the sort of coastal lifestyle living in austin doesn't help with that but there's a, a cool little man-made wave that the wsl and kelly slater's taken over in austin so i'm just waiting for that and i'm gonna say uh kelly can you please uh, get a <laughs> platinum membership there or yeah, something because you know kelly a little bit yeah i've played with kelly a few times in golf tournaments got to know him pretty well so hopefully that relationship will uh, bring some uh, fruit to bear in the years to come all right and then just the best and the worst thing about being on tour that people might not expect best and worst thing worst thing hands down is packing Mm. I, I am the most OCD guy, so I get all my dirty laundry and I still have to fold it and oh, put it no. in my suitcase to make it fit properly. I, I can't just, I'm trying to force myself now to just throw it in the bag and close it up. 
but I'm so OCD. So it takes me like an hour to pack every time oh, I no. pack. But uh, best thing on tour, I mean, it's probably in the same vein, the laundry service of the PGA Tour. <laughs> You're a big laundry guy. You must be a clean, organized guy. This is coming through. Yeah, if you guys haven't picked it up in this podcast, you probably never will. But yeah, it, the, the perks that we have at tournaments are amazing. I mean, haircuts in the locker room, you have a barber there. Laundry, you just throw it in a bag, hand it off, and it comes back to you. I mean, that's that's awesome too. But I would say just meeting people in general would be the other thing. I've met so many cool people over the seven years that i've been playing pro golf now and i hope i get to meet even even cool i mean playing golf with kelly slater i never in my wildest dream as a kid did i think i'd even get to watch him surf let alone meet the guy and call him a friend but all these experiences are things that drive me to play as well as i can because if i'm not playing good golf these people are not going to want to meet me or interview me or spend time with me i guess yeah are these are there a lot of dudes with that same like level of ocd attention to detail i remember tiger saying a few years ago he was like i make the beds in my hotel room when he was asked you know how detail oriented he is he's like i literally i don't let the staff do it i just make the bed if that's what he does if he grew up making his bed and that's routine and works you're not going to change something like that i'm the same way and i've seen it in a few other guys but i think a lot of the guys on the pj tour wisely delegate stuff they have managers they have agents to do stuff I'm still hands-on with everything. I still book my flights. I still book my hotels. I still have a finger on all those pulses. And that's something that I'm going to have to slowly let go of so I can focus that time. Luckily, I don't have a wife or anything now. But when that family life comes into it, I'm sure I'll have to delegate a bit more to free free some time up. And is there anything that you'd like to share? Any takes you'd like to get off your chest to the, uh, to the golf.com audience? No, I would just say uh, thanks for all the support. Tons of guys reached out after the John Deere win and... I guess my social media is doing a whole lot better now. Follow my Instagram. Have a look there. I give a lot of inside takes on tour life. So if you want to see some stuff behind the ropes, I definitely share a lot of that in, in my Instagram and social media. I love it. You were on there with Bryson yesterday. What he was, You were making him guess the height of the Statue of Liberty? <laughs> exactly. I think he was pretty close. He actually was spot on. Someone checked it. We said from the base of Lady Liberty to the top of the flame i guess and it was 153 feet and he guessed 150 so he was <laughs> spot on that's a pretty good eye from across the water there that was an amazing guess i was like 180 feet was my guess but still maybe, pretty maybe solid he knew. he's a pretty smart guy so he probably learned that in like seventh grade and somehow he had it in a file saved back there he was just playing it cool yeah probably oh man all right well this is dylan and dylan reporting live from the northern trust thanks for joining me in the sauna here And uh, we appreciate your time. We'll have you again on soon. Sounds good. Thanks a lot for the time, Dylan. He wasn't exactly reporting live from the sauna. I got to get out of that. That's your thing. I got to get out of that habit. I mean, everything is kind of reporting live, like at the time when you're doing it. But it's just some of it ages better than others. Well, before we go, one final thing. My favorite moment of this entire week was Rory McIlroy's rules dilemma on Friday, where he gets in this weird situation in a bunker. He goes down to grab what he thinks is a pebble out of the bunker, permitted under the new rules. Turns out it's one of those little crusty sand conglomerations. It's just a bunch of sand together, a clump. So he touches it, suddenly realizes it's not a pebble, turns into this whole thing. He thinks he's been assessed a two-stroke penalty. After the round, they call the USGA, they call Slugger White, Mark Russell, the whole band is involved. Ultimately determine, thank goodness, no penalty. Because? Because? Santa's just a bunch of rocks. That's not why. 
Oh. But that was that was the extension of this argument by the end. I think it's it's this combo of Doug Ferguson and Jason Sobel are, are querying Rory in his press conference after all this. And Rory was just saying, look, I was pissed at myself because I was like, you know, just don't touch the sand. But then at the end of the day, it was like, okay, if you can move rocks, but you can't move sand, where is the dividing line there? So Rory finishes his presser. He said, look, that was the point I was going to argue at the very end. I was just going to argue at the end of the day, isn't it all just rock? Yeah. And I thought this is just the pro- most perfect Rory McIlroy soundbite. Yeah. This guy has more perspective, <laughs> you know, looking at the bigger picture than anyone else on tour. Like at the end of the day, isn't it all just golf? You know, wow. like, isn't it all just, we need to just take a step back and look at the yeah. big picture here. A little learning moment, uh, generally in the geologic community, anything smaller than two millimeters is considered sand. There we go. Up from there, you know, you get into this range of gravel, which starts with granules, goes to pebbles, and then up to boulders. However, in the tour rules, we're talking about stones, which is a little bit more of a gray area. Mm. So I think if we really went to golf court, Rory might be onto something. Yeah, so pace of play. And the sediments of the PJ Tour have a lot of gray area. Mm-hmm. That is what we've discovered in this edition of the Golf.com podcast. Thanks for joining us. For Dylan Chair, I'm Sean Zock. We'll see you here next week.